Some of you beloved listeners are alcoholic. I am melancholic. I am addicted to the glum. And, of course, these are good times for the likes of me. But uh, we may have the antidote for you tonight because we're going to be talking about the history of cheerfulness. Cheerfulness has a surprisingly deep history. Seems it played an important part in the Western canon, spanning from the works of Shakespeare to the songs of Louis Armstrong. Timothy Hampton is our guide. He's a writer, scholar, teacher, translator, professor of comparative literature and French at the University of California, Berkeley. His latest book is titled Cheerfulness, A Literary and Cultural History. Tim, welcome to a little wireless program with a proud history of being glum. I have to ask you, does the book inspired by some eureka moment? Uh, it was inspired by a eureka moment, but it didn't have to do with either being glum or being cheerful. So I'm a bit concerned uh, to hear about your glumness, but we'll see what we can do over the course of the conversation. Uh, it came to me from reading uh, the essays of the French philosopher Montaigne, who was somewhat of a melancholic. And uh, there's a wonderful moment in one of Montaigne's essays where he is talking about the importance of education. And he suddenly says, the surest sign of wisdom is a constant cheerfulness, he says. Its status is like things above the moon, always serene. <laughs> and I was brought up by that, first of all, because it's such a beautiful sentence. My goodness, who can write like that? But I also couldn't figure out what the heck he was talking about and what does that mean, the surest sign of wisdom is a constant cheerfulness. So I began snooping around and I thought, what would cheerfulness mean? What would it be? What would it be in his time? What would it be in our time? And moreover, is there a, a kind of history that we could trace from his period, the Renaissance, to the present day? How has cheerfulness changed? How does it work? What is it? What does it connote? What is it connected to? And so I became uh, maybe less an advocate of cheerfulness than an historian of cheerfulness. And I began trying to sort of uh, pry it out of the nooks and crannies of uh, our culture to see what it does. Well, look, I, I share your devotion to the essays of Montaigne, so that's great as a start. Yes. But uh, would you be kind enough to give me a, a rough definition of what you believe cheerfulness to be? How do you describe it? Yes. It seems to me, from what I can tell from having read around in philosophy and literature, it seems to suggest a kind of momentary brightening of the self, a kind of uptick of energy. I mean, there's a beautiful moment in a, in, a, in a book that you would like by the English philosopher Robert Burton called Anatomy of Melancholy from the early 17th century. And he says, he says, good things may come upon a moment, cheer up. There's that idea that in a moment we can sort of change our psychological or emotional being by a sort of injection of energy and a certain kind of lightness. So uh, images of lightness, uh, sense of bits of energy, all seem to be connected to cheerfulness. Well, I, I want some. It sounds terrific. And I yes. also like your uh, line that it's a modest emotion. Yes, it's a modest emotion. And I think one of the things, one of the things I discovered working on it was that it hasn't been studied a lot by scholars or philosophers, 
though literary writers seem to be very interested in it. And I think the reason that philosophers have not been interested in it is because it is modest. It's it's not sexy like like melancholy or anger or ecstasy. These are the things that philosophers often focus on. They love those extreme emotions, whereas uh, cheerfulness is a kind of modest and not very sexy emotion, and it's easily available to all of us. It's sort of lying around uh, and waiting for us to pick it up. I, so I, think, I think you're making it a bit sexy already, but <laughs> would you be kind enough to tell me the evolution of the word cheer? Yes. So the word cheer comes from an old French word, chere, C-H-I-E-R-E, which means simply face. And it's connected to the face. We have that etymology in a number of uh, languages. In Spanish, they use the word cara to to speak of uh, the face. And so originally, cheer simply meant face. So if you read something like Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, for example, you'll find characters all over the place who have a cheer, and it's a kind of presentation of the self through the face. So you'll meet characters who have a pale cheer or who have a drooping cheer and so on and so forth. And it's it's a noun, and it's always modified by an adjective uh, one way or another. So that's, I think, where we start with cheerfulness is in the face. It begins there, and it moves um, elsewhere in the self. There's now, as, as it happens, I have a face like one of those Easter Island heads. Yeah, exactly. Very, very yes. grim and marmorial, but yes. I'm feeling a hint of cheerfulness as we Here, speak. Well, I'm glad to hear that, Philip. What, one of the interesting things about it is that it, it you know, we're often, when we often we think about emotions, we think that they start inside of us and move outwards. But uh, the writing I found about cheerfulness suggests that it begins in the face and, and moves inward. So there's a there's a beautiful passage that sums that up by a French writer named Madame de Stal, who wrote right at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. And she has a wonderful discussion of conversation. And she uses the French word gaiety, which is a kind of synonym for cheerfulness. And gaiety is all, always in the face in, in the French tradition. And she says, you know, you you're in conversation and you put on an expression of gaiety. And the gaiety will sort of move from your face into your soul and change your soul, even if you were gloomy when you started out. So it's a kind of it's a kind of process of kind of changing the way in which you relate to other people by starting at the surface. So I hope this is cheering you up, Philip. Let's let's look at the Bible, God's fine work of fiction. I understand yes. St. Paul gives it a diagonal nod. St. Paul does wonderful things in, uh, with cheerfulness, or I should say it's not St. Paul, it's actually the translators who turned the Bible into what we know as the King James Version uh, at the end of the 16th century, beginning of the 17th century. There's a wonderful moment in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians where he's talking about charity and the practice of charity and love and community in the kind of new Christian uh, community that he's trying to establish and he says we should all be we should all be generous to each other and we should all give willingly not grudgingly because he says in the King James version god loveth a cheerful giver he says and um i can tell you that that's not what it says in latin or greek but that's what it's made to say uh, when it's translated into english at the at the end of the renaissance and i can tell you that if you read around in what theologians have 
upset about that passage in the Bible, especially when it, when it first came out. I mean, they had no idea what to make of that, right? They said, "What, what does that mean? You have to have a merry look when you're when you're being uh, charitable? Does it mean you have to be smiling when you're being charitable? Does it mean that if you are charitable and you're not smiling, that you're not really a good Christian?" So there's a whole kind of web of perplexity trying to figure out what Saint what the heck Saint Paul was talking about. Now but we're emphasizing we're emphasizing faith, but you argue that cheerfulness, or you point out that cheerfulness is spoken of as a force that can literally heal the body. It can heal the body, yes. So it's it's often understood as being the contrary of melancholy. Now melancholy, as you would know, being a melancholic is uh, attached or connected to the idea of the humors that in the, in early modern and pre-modern uh, medicine sort of circulate through the body, these kind of fluids that have to be kind of controlled and heated up and cooled down. And um, cheerfulness can sort of uh, shake up the melancholic humor and improve things. Remind and, and me, what are the what are the others? There's uh, the choleric and the phlegmatic. Choleric, the sanguine. Uh, the choleric is what makes you angry. The sanguine is what makes you sort of hot. And me- the melancholic is black bile. And that's what, of course, that's what <laughs> poets and artists and uh, radio personalities all suffer from. And um, in order to, to deal with that and the excess of melancholy, you have to be, you have to generate various kinds of cheerfulness. These so days, the that, these days, we like to think there's a pill for everything. Well, well that's in, exactly right. Well, in, 19, well, I'm, I'm, in 1696, William Salmon gave yes. us a recipe for a powder yes. to create cheerfulness and I have to share with the listener its ingredients. They include clove, yes. basil, saffron, lemon peel, ivory shavings, leaves of gold and silver and shavings from the heart of a stag. Not easy to get all those ingredients. Well, not today and probably not in 1696 but, it, you know, it, I find that moment in my consideration of sort of cheerfulness and medicine, right, I find that to be in some ways a very moving moment because it gives you a sense of how desperate these people were to sort of do something about their psychological disposition. I mean, it's a, it's a completely insane recipe. Who would ever take it? I hope nobody took it. I mean, if they did take it, they probably didn't survive very long. Timothy, I think you should warn the listeners, do not try this at home. Exactly. Do not, yes. Especially the part about the uh, the gold leaf and the shavings from the stag's heart. Um, but it's, it you know, it's fascinating that they had this idea that you could medically induce cheerfulness. You can also induce it in other kinds of ways. For example, with a glass of wine, but only one, not two. I have to ask you, is this notion of cheer and cheerfulness a uniquely or primarily Western concept? You know, that's a great question. And this is something that I really struggled with because I I wanted to write something that would be kind of wide-ranging, but I didn't want to make grand claims uh, that I was sort of saying something about human nature or human history or human society and uh, I was particularly concerned about the fact that most of the authors that I ended up studying were, you know, canonical sort of Western, mostly English language or French or German writers, Shakespeare, or Jane Austen, people like that. Um, so I worked a lot with colleagues of mine who work on non-European traditions, 
Chinese tradition, the South Asian tradition. And I, I sort of would follow them around and say, are you, know, are you sure there's nothing that sounds like cheerfulness in the tradition that you work on? And often the, the word cheerfulness is sometimes used in translations of works from these cultures, but they seem to feel that there was not a kind of sustained reflection on cheer and cheerfulness in the way that we think of it in the kind of uh, Anglo-Americans, Australian, European West. My incredibly cheerful guest is Timothy Hampton, and uh, we're talking about the literary and cultural history of, yes, cheerfulness. Now, let's move on to the literary. My favourite Shakespearean character is Hamlet, a fellow melancholic, and uh, I remember in his soliloquy there was a total lack of, uh, well, of cheer. But you tell me that Shakespeare was into cheer. Shakespeare was into cheer. Uh, I think he was mostly interested in cheer. Uh, I'm connecting it back to what we were talking about just a moment ago, uh, these ideas of charity and community and sort of uh, lightness of the self. He was very interested in what happens when cheer goes away. So we have uh, a number of Shakespeare plays where there are moments when something terrible is about to happen. And just before it happens, one character will say to the other, you've lost your cheer. This is what, in Hamlet, this is what the player queen says to the player king in the play within the play. Just before he's about to get poisoned, she looks at him and she says, you've lost your cheer. What's this about? And something similar happens in Macbeth when Macbeth and, and Lady Macbeth are about to have a, a party to celebrate his accession to the throne after he's just killed the king and everybody else. And he's, everybody's arriving and they're popping the corks and bringing out the cheese and crackers. And suddenly Lady Macbeth turns to Macbeth and says, you, you've lost the cheer. Where's the cheer? And, and right at that moment, like two lines later, the ghost of Macbeth's friend Banquo, whom he has just murdered, appears. And, you know, he, at that point he goes completely berserk and all kinds of crazy stuff starts happening. So, that, so Shakespeare's very interested in this idea that just before something really bad happens, some character will say, you have lost your cheer or I have lost your cheer. Richard III, just before he goes into the battle where he's going to lose his kingdom, says, I have lost the cheer. I've had. So Shakespeare is using it as a way of getting us to think, I think, about um, psychology and uh, how we can connect the sort of psychological and emotional status of the self uh, at moments of crisis. Now, enter stage right, Adam Smith. See you later, Shakespeare. In comes <laughs> Adam Smith. What does he have to say? Well, Adam Smith is wonderful because he's in, he's very interested in cheerfulness. There was a lot of interest in cheerfulness in the 18th century in the Enlightenment, as we would suspect. Um, his 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 colleague David Hume was very interested in cheerfulness, and Smith has a wonderful moment in Wealth of Nations, the famous book about the rise of capitalism, where he talks about the difference between melancholy economies and cheerful economies. And cheerful economies, you you guessed it, are are sort of free market economies in which uh, in which people buy and sell, and uh, um, we get the kind of uh, first glimmerings of capitalism. But he's also very concerned about the fact that the excessive cheerfulness of the kind of capitalist system needs to be controlled. And he says, if you you know if you put those workers out there and they're working for themselves, they they they're going to get so agitated they're going to work themselves 
into a state of burnout. So they have to be carefully controlled. So it's a kind of controlled cheerfulness that Adam Smith has in mind there at the dawn of the of the capitalist system. Let's let's now mention in dispatches Charles Dickens. Oh yes. Well, Charles Dickens. I'm glad you asked about Charles Dickens. I, I, I so when I was working on this book, I just I, I didn't go about it particularly systematically. I, I I did do some work with word searches and things like that to try and see which writers were talking about cheerfulness a lot. But but I mostly followed my instincts as I tend to do when I when I'm doing this kind of research. And I knew from the very get go that Dickens was had to be in there because there's so many characters who, when terrible things happen to them, seem to somehow find cheerfulness. So I read a number of Dickens novels, but I fixated in particular on David Copperfield, uh, which is, a, as you know, a rags to riches story. And, and I found, you know, much to my delight that there are key moments in, in the novel where characters who are not spoken of as cheerful suddenly become cheerful. And he'll say, as he says of one of the main characters, Agnes Wick- Wickfield, there's a kind of crisis in her life and she suddenly summons up the power of cheerfulness to overcome it. And the, and Copperfield says, and from that day on, she was always cheerful. Now, and that, that, leads us, that leads us to the gendered aspect of cheerfulness. Yes. And you point yes. out that Jane Austen's female characters yes. are expected to be cheerful. They are expected to be cheerful. And we hear, we learn this on the second page of Jane Austen's very first novel, Sense and Sensibility, where we meet the mother of the two heroines, the Dashwood daughters, uh, Mrs. Dashwood, and we're told that Mrs. Dashwood was so cheerful that she was, in some cases, just irritatingly cheerful. And because she knew that a young woman's duty is to be cheerful and to expect cheerfulness once she marries and has a family and settles down. And so cheerfulness becomes the sort of default for a female character in Jane Austen. And of course, the stories are all about characters who can't quite find that cheerfulness. And uh, in Sense and Sensibility, Marianne, the youngest daughter, has her heart broken and has a kind of psychological crisis. And Austin tells us in the in the later chapters that she was fighting her way back to cheerfulness. cheerfulness. Whatever you whatever you're smoking, I want some. But before I let you go back to the weed, Louis yes. Armstrong. Yes. Well, I was interested in Armstrong because I wanted to think about um, I, I wanted to think about the racialization of cheerfulness. You know, there's a long history in North America because of our or in the United States because of our problematic relationship to the, the history of slavery. There's a long history of white people observing black people in terrible situations and somehow drawing the conclusion that they're being cheerful. In fact, there's even a fascinating passage. Uh, that I found by Abraham Lincoln, who was on a riverboat on the Mississippi River, and and he encountered a group of slaves chained together. And he says, oh, you know, they were just the most cheerful people on the boat. They were singing and throwing dice and laughing. And this kind of really horrendous misunderstanding of the black person uh, uh, as cheerful and this idea of the kind of cheery black male, the servant, uh, the butler, the chauffeur that we see again and again in Hollywood movies, for example. Armstrong, uh, in my view at least, is playing on that tradition, but also turning it upside down because he's always 
uh, making fun of himself as a kind of performing self. And you're never really sure what's Lewis and what's Satchmo and where one stops and the other begins. So I think of his high spirits as really offering a beautiful reinvention of that cheerful tradition. Well, I'm pretty persuaded, Tim, I must admit. I now am willing to negotiate a truce with you and I'm going to see cheerfulness and melancholia as sort of condiments and, you know, the salt and pepper, if you like, of our I emotion, think that's the way to go. Um, our emotional life. I've been talking to Timothy Hampton. Tim is Professor of Comparative Literature and French at the University of California, Berkeley. And his book is Cheerfulness, a Literary and Cultural History. It's published by Princeton University Press. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.